This is the Scott Bradley Show podcast. Two years ago today, something happened in central, central East Hamilton involving a police officer having a an involvement with Councillor Matthew Green. And that led to a complaint, which led to a hearing, which led to a verdict today. A Police Services Act arbitrator ruled today that a Hamilton police officer, quote, acted as one would expect when he stopped his cruiser and talked to Hamilton City Councillor Matt Green, who was standing under a bridge. Uh, The arbitrator ruled he had not racially profiled the city's only black councillor. Then, having made that determination, the arbitrator ruled Constable Andrew Pfeiffer was not guilty of discreditable conduct. Here, let me just read a little bit. This It's a long ruling. I'll give you a couple paragraphs. This is what the arbitrator wrote. We require as a routine part of their duties that police officers talk to members of the public at random for a variety of reasons, and more so if there are concerns on their part regarding the behavior of an individual to them on first glance about the individual's welfare and or motives for being in a certain location. Police officers seldom have the luxury of relaxed contemplation when determining whether a person is in need of assistance or there are other motives for their behavior without further investigation on their behalf. And then down, I have concluded, given the evidence presented in this tribunal, the questioning of Mr. Green was not an arbitrary one. The officers believed upon initially observing Mr. Green standing at the edge of the underpass, partially concealed, may have been dealing with some kind of anxiety and made the decision to stop and speak with him. This is unquestionably a case that has stirred strong feelings on both sides of the aisle. Some have said this is just another example of racial profiling that goes on all the time by police. Others have said the counselor inflamed a situation into something that it wasn't. Now, I did ask Councillor Green to join me this evening. I did not hear back from him. But I would like to welcome onto the show Bernie Cummins, who is the lawyer for Constable Andrew Pfeiffer. Uh, Sir, thanks for doing this today. Thank you for having me. Outside the hearing room after all this was done, Councillor Green said this was the ruling that he had expected because of inherent bias in the system, that the police appoint the prosecutor, the adjudicator is a former deputy chief, the adjudicator was not racialized, it was not a minority. Uh, Is he correct? Is this an inherently biased system that is set up to make sure that complaints are not founded? It absolutely is not. Anything that uh, Mr. Green doesn't agree with, it automatically goes to being biased and somebody is racist. He uh, made that allegation against me outside of the hearing. He uh, alleged that the hearing officer, in effect, was was biased. But interestingly, and what I I trust uh, all your uh, fans that are, are listening this evening will care about, is that that was never raised in the hearing. I mean, would one not expect, and and I can tell you it's required if you're raising bias, you have to bring it to the attention of the hearing officer. So that that is just a further example of, of how Mr. Green, much like a, a drunk who staggers from issue to issue, just, uh, you know, bowls over the next issue if the first one doesn't have any merit. This started out with his initial tweet, don't forget, where he lied to the public indicating that he was carded. That just is fundamentally uh, is and was untrue. He then stumbled onto it being a racial profiling case, and then they staggered into that there was a lack of police training. Uh, again, what your listeners would be interested to know, that uh, that Mr. Green was invited, and I understand took up the offer to meet with the uh, Professional Standards Bureau to look into the issue of police training. That was before the hearing started. And not one 
thing was raised about inappropriate police training around racialized issues. Not one thing was raised in the hearing by Mr. Green and his lawyer. Uh, So then it uh, became that there was a lack of training, fundamentally untrue, and then that the whole system is biased. Now, that is a fundamental attack on really the administrative branch of our judicial system, but one wonders, does it not extend then to our judiciary? There's lots of uh, our whole Court of Appeal panel, I believe, is white, and so is the Supreme Court of Canada. So clearly Mr. Green must be taking the position that if you're not of a racialized origin, you're not in a position to make a decision. Um, That's just fundamentally untrue, and courts have consistently, and so have administrative tribunals, made the findings about uh, racial profiling. We know it exists, and it's been recognized to exist by the Court of Appeal for Ontario. So again, uh, I caution everybody to keep in mind that what this is is a public campaign by Mr. Green uh, to stagger from one false issue to another out in the hallway, not in the hearing room. Just to be clear, do officers ever lose these cases? Are these complaints upheld at times? What complaints? I well, mean, what, if there's a police service, n- not this one particularly, in these Police Service Act hearings, are these, the the, the idea that this is a, a biased process, are there officers regularly or routinely that get convicted of these things? Uh, well, of cases I, I in front of police service. And routinely, but certainly I've had many instances where police officers have pled guilty to misconduct under the Police Services Act. There's nothing uh, at all, you know, again, like this issue wasn't ever raised in the hearing. It's just fundamentally untrue. And it's, again, just another diversionary tactic to try and get the public to not deal with the fundamental issue. And that is that he lacked credibility. The very first statement of the of the findings was I lacked the necessary confidence in Mr. Green's credibility to accept his evidence. I mean, what other conclusion can one reach? If you're not credible, you're not worthy of belief. And that's what Mr. Grant Green was found to be. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. Chatting with Bernie Cummins, who is the lawyer for Constable Andrew Pfeiffer, who was found not guilty today of discreditable conduct for stopping, for talking to Councillor Matt Green under by an underpass two years ago today, which led to a hearing, which led to a complaint, which led to today's verdict. Uh, Mr. Cummins, Councillor Green has now said after the ruling today, he said he's now going to take the next step and file a human rights complaint. Is there a difference? Is there a different standard of proof in a hearing like that from this one, or is it essentially the same thing, just in a different venue? I can't really comment on that because uh, I don't uh, practice in that particular okay. area, but um, it it's consistent with Mr. Green's conduct all along. He just goes from one issue to another, so that doesn't uh, catch me by surprise at all. There have been people who, and now this has been an issue in Hamilton discussions for some time now about police and lapel cameras or vest cameras or something like that. Would that have helped in this case? Would that have clarified what happened? Would that have prevented a hearing from even needing to be done one way or another? Well, it, it de- certainly depends on what's captured, what uh, what is retained. But, uh, you know, clearly it probably would have helped the hearing officer who said, and I quote, I do not have the confidence in Mr. Green's account that would allow me to base a conviction on his evidence. So um, clearly um, he reached a conclusion about the credibility of the evidence that Mr. Green uh, was pontificating, and that was essentially what the hearing officer 
found, too, that uh, whenever he was asked a question in cross-examination, uh, he immediately tried to uh, resent questions that were, and I quote, were quite properly put to him, repeatedly making speeches and arguing with counsel rather than answering the questions. And, and that's what we were subjected to in that hearing for the better part of five days. That sort of conduct, that sort of behavior. And again, I'd ask your listeners to keep in mind what really happened here. A police officer doing his job in a police cruiser that's marked, stopping in a line, live lane of traffic, and communicating with a member of the public from 40 feet away, never getting out of his vehicle, never taking his seatbelt off, never putting the vehicle in park. How could any reasonably-minded person ever conclude that Mr. Green was detained? That would be the most absurd detention ever in the history of policing in Canada. It simply didn't happen. It is a completely false narrative, and today the truth prevailed. And if I can go back to something you said last segment, just before we took the break, because uh, uh, I want to clarify this. At no point in this hearing, as far as evidence being presented or anything else, at no point was racial profiling raised or evidence presented of that? Well, I mean, uh, Mr. Green had standing through his lawyer, and again, they uh, attempted to raise the issue of, of racial profiling, but the hearing officer found there was no evidence to support racial profiling, and, and indeed there wasn't, because for there to be racial profiling, of course, uh, there would have to be some evidence that the officer is stopping simply uh, based on race and that the investigation was motivated by race. And none of that evidence existed because it simply did not occur. I can't believe that this is going to, that this ruling today, regardless of the ruling, is going to change people's opinions. Those who believe Councillor Green are still going to believe Councillor Green. Those who believe your client are probably still going to believe your client. Does that matter that it, that this that this probably does not have a significant impact on public opinion? I wouldn't think. Well, I think what matters is that people's uh, judgments be informed you know, by the truth and by evidence. And, and if people, I, I invite them to get a copy of the judgment and, and uh, repeatedly through it, the hearing officer uh, makes reference to the lack of credibility in Mr. Green's uh, pontificating. Really, it's virtually a word that he used to describe his conduct when he was uh, testifying in cross-examination. So I think uh, a member of the public that's informed or chooses to inform themselves will have uh, confidence at the end, that this isn't happening. This just simply did not occur. And, you know, the logical inference that needs to be drawn from this as well is the following. What on earth do members of the Hamilton Police Service gain from engaging in racial profiling? I mean, they're all about trying to build up um, community liaisons with, with members of the public, not tearing them down. So on the face of it, the allegation is absurd. Just before I let you go, um, what is Constable Pfeiffer's next step in this? Does he just leave it here, or does he look at legal action himself against Councillor Green back at it? Is there anything that happens from here? Uh, well, I mean, that's something that, uh, you know, he'll have to assess in, in, uh, in confidence and uh, after a great discussion. Um, you know, t- today's not the day to do that, but I can tell you, that he's looking forward. He's always been at work. He's a valued member of the Hamilton Police Service. He'll be back at work, and he was only doing his job. What more could we expect? Bernie Cummins, appreciate your time tonight, sir. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for having me. Uh, The ruling, by the way, if you go to thespec.com and you can find the story there and embedded into the story, you can find the ruling if you want to read it. Now,
Uh, as I said at the very top when I started this segment, I did send an email today asking Councillor Green to join me. I did not get a response. I would be happy to have Councillor Green on to discuss his side of this. I would love to have him on to hear the difference of opinion that he would have with Mr. Cummins. And if that opportunity presents, absolutely equal airtime will be provided to Councillor Green. I would love to do that. I hope we can do that. Just hasn't worked out to this point. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. Last October, President Donald Trump said all the remaining files that were held about the assassination of John F. Kennedy, and there were still thousands of them, all of them would be released six months later. That was back in October. And that six-month spot would bring us to April 26th. Today, today was the day that all the remaining files on the JFK assassination were going to be made public. And we were going to learn everything remaining to know about who killed John F. Kennedy. Was it Lee Harvey Oswald? Was it the mafia? Was it Castro? Was it, I don't know, pick whoever else. The 1947 Montreal Canadiens alumni team. It could be anybody in this story. We don't know who this is. There's lots of different versions. I don't know if they've ever been dropped into a conversation of this before, but you know. Well, sure enough, a whole bunch of files today were made public. I think something in the neighborhood of 19,000 pages, but not all. Bowing to some pressure from the intelligence community, from the CIA, I believe, uh, Trump said some documents will now be protected for three and a half more years until 2021. Why? Well, we'll find out in a moment. So do the ones, however, today tell us anything. Was this document dump something that was truly illustrative or open or helpful, or was it just paperwork? Randy Owen is a JFK assassination expert who's spoken on this wonderful, terrible, unbelievable mystery that we've had for decades now. He's spoken on it dozens and dozens and probably hundreds of times. He joins us now. Randy, thanks for doing this today. Well, thank you, Scott. I'm glad to be with you. Uh, how big, just do I have the numbers right? How big was this document dumped today? How many documents were actually released? Yeah, about 19,000 documents. Uh, and previously up until then, it, was, it had been about 32,000 had been released up until today. So relatively speaking, it was a uh, an enormous amount of stuff that was put out. Yeah, uh, out of uh, the 5 million pages that oh, okay. comprised the whole collection. <laughs> okay, so not so much then. Um, it, now, obviously, they've been now out for a few hours. I don't expect even you, who is so uh, uh, deeply into this, to have read 19,000 pages in the last two or three hours. That would be remarkable. Well, it took me three years to read 18,000 pages. Well, so we'll call you back in three years and get the full rundown on this. But <laughs> from what we know and from the people who have been glancing over these and looking, it, on first blush, is there anything earth-shattering? Is there anything mind-blowing in these ones that we're going to learn? No, and I think it's just like six months ago. Uh, what you have is a, a picture of what might have happened, and the documents just add a little bit of colors, like a paint-by-number kind of painting, and I think the documents just add a little bit more colored uh, sections of the puzzle to it. Uh, nothing earth-shattering, really, uh, but it reinforces whatever theory you might have about the assassination, I think. You can find a little gem here or there that'll you know, support whatever theory you might have. Okay, so by the way, to clarify the idea of 19,000 documents, I was looking at some of the things today. There was a, a stack of uh, PDFs that I was able to look at. There are a lot of documents that essentially are almost blank pages. Like not every one of the 19,000 pages is loaded with information. 
No, and, and a lot of the stuff that I'm seeing for the first time uh, is stuff that uh, doesn't add anything at all to the picture. For example, uh, the pay records uh, of the members of the House Select Committee on Assassinations, the congressional committee that looked at this back in the 1970s for about two and a half years. So that doesn't help solve the problem. But, you know, Randy, that raises, a, for me, a really puzzling question over all this. And that is, if, it, if there's so many things like these almost blank pages or pay records or whatever, why have these documents been held onto and clutched to by the government so strongly for so long? Why do they care? Well, a lot of the problem is uh, people don't understand that the Congressional Committee in the 70s that looked at it, uh, it was a standing rule in the United States Congress that whenever a committee did any investigative work, their working files uh, and papers were kept secret for 50 years. It doesn't matter what, what Congressional Committee it was. Uh, but because of the Oliver Stone movie, uh, there was an uproar about a, a title card at the end of the movie that yes. said all these you know files were, were hidden and all that sort of stuff. And so that caused... Uh, the JFK Records Act to be passed, uh, trying to get as many of these documents released as possible. So it was just normal paperwork, government bureaucracy that kept a lot of this stuff secret, but a lot of it has trickled out over the years, and a lot of it, of course, coming now through all these dumps that the, the National Archives is doing. Okay, so the, the fact that these ones are coming out today is not necessarily because these are the most secret, it's just that these are the ones they finally got around to in some cases. Yeah, government bureaucracy is why they were kept <laughs> secret in the first place. Uh, you know, the people, I wonder how many people they've had working on this, which is why Americans will be complaining about not being able to get other stuff done, because we had so many government workers trying to go through the JFK papers. Well, fortunately, uh, there's, a, there's a few good researchers out there that are devoting a lot of time to it. So, and these are the guys I trust a lot to, to look at the documents and, and make some pretty valid conclusions about what's there and what's not there and what should be there. I want to get into whether, because the, there were a few things that if they, I don't even, I can't, I'm not sure if, from what I've read today, if they were in these documents or if people were simply hoping they were going to be in these documents. There was one thing that came out, uh, something about a CIA official damaging, intentionally damaging autopsy photos. Yeah, this was an old story. I mean, I remember the news stories when it happened back around 1978 or so. Uh, the House Select Committee, the Congressional Committee, had uh, access to the uh, highly secret JFK autopsy photographs. They kept them in a safe in, in a binder, and uh, the CIA agent had gone into the safe. Uh, one of the uh, photographs was actually ripped from the binder. Another one was removed from its plastic sleeve. Uh, and then when the uh, committee found out about the, the broken into safe, they had Washington police come in and fingerprint, uh, do fingerprint uh, dusting, and they went to the FBI with the fingerprints that they had, and they matched them to a CIA guy. Uh, and then the thing that I found today uh, is just, it's just more color to the story. For example, I didn't know that they had questioned this guy three times, and three times they knew that he had lied about why he had gone in there or how he got access to the photographs. And the best part of the story is how the congressional members go over to the CIA to talk about this with a CIA director. And as they're talking about it, the CIA asks the uh, congressional members, well, are you guys going to go along with uh, the report that uh, we're going to do on this? Well, they hadn't even come up with a report yet, and they wanted the committee to, to back the report before it was even written. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show, weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. Chatting with Randy Owen, JFK assassination expert, who uh, we're talking about the documents that were released today. This was a big day for JFK assassination researchers, 19,000 new documents that were put out there. And we're talking about some of the things that either were in these documents or that people were hoping would be, Randy. And another one that I saw today that I was reading this story about, and I'm assuming you're going to know this. By the way, anyone who's listening, I have not primed Randy on these stories. So anything he knows, he knows. Just, you know. 
good for you, but just in case people are wondering. Um, the story that I don't know if they were in the documents, but people were hoping were, was the story of Charles Thomas. Now, oh, the, the, the diplomat. So apparently the story is, and I'll start it, then you can jump in. He was a diplomat who apparently discovered some information that may have led to people to undermining the Warren report, and suddenly he is found dead shortly after that, uh, you know, having, quote, quote, killed himself. I'll let you take it from there. Okay, he was he was a, a diplomat uh, down in uh, Mexico, uh, and of course Lee Harvey Oswald was there about six weeks before the assassination. Um, and it was in the years after, especially in the year after, uh, he thought he had some important information to share with the commission, and, and he was uh, quite adamant that uh, there wasn't a proper investigation done in Mexico City of Oswald's connections, because while Oswald was there, he went to the Soviet embassy, the Cuban embassy, he was trying to get back into Russia once again, because he had defected once before. Um, and I think Thomas was pretty troubled by about all this. I'm not so sure it's it's that... Uh, suspicious because he didn't commit suicide until about 1971, which would have been about eight years after the assassination. But what he knew uh, and what Thomas wanted to get to get to uh, uh, other you know, responsible researchers or investigators or the government, uh, nobody really knows for sure just just yet. And there might be something written down somewhere, but I haven't seen anything yet. Do you expect, once the final document is finally released, and, and, and that may never actually ever happen for all we know, but if it, uh, let's assume it does. Once the final document is released and we now see everything the investigators, the government, the Warren Commission, all, everybody has ever gathered, will it tell us who killed Kennedy? No, uh, and I think what we're seeing right now is uh, a game that's being played by... Uh, the people who are in charge, and, and they're putting all this stuff out. And uh, like I said, whatever theory you might have, you'll find a, a document or something that will support it. So it's like a wild goose chase, except all the geese are running off in different directions. Uh, that's part of the problem. I think the other part of the problem is, I mean, there's been so much information, so much misinformation, and so much disinformation, deliberately wrong information that's put out there for whatever reason, uh, that I think if the truth ever comes out, nobody will ever know it. <laughs> it well, won't, be, won't be recognizable. It might have already come out. Well, and now, do I understand right that the pages that are left, so so Trump put out or allowed all these pages to come out today, and I saw a number, and this can't be right, but that the remaining pages that have not, or documents that have not been released that are now being held for three and a half more years, it's not, it numbers something like 500? Um, I think it's probably, I think it's probably zero. Um, I think what you're seeing right now is all the documents have been released. However, they have not all been released in full. Oh. So there are still some blacked out sections, redacted sections, that sort of stuff. Uh, so I think all of the pages have been released, but like you said, when you saw some of the documents and like they're all white pages or black pages, uh, that's what we're going to have to deal with for the next three and a half years and perhaps even longer is trying to get those redactions lifted. But Randy, that does that not lead people like you, people who study this, to believe that, look, if everything is out and we're now, how many years, you can do the math in your head, I'm 63 to 2055 years, something like that, whatever it is. Um, there must be something spectacular under that black ink that they are still hiding if at this point they still, the CIA is still telling the president, you can't release that yet. We're in 2018. You still can't release that. That's got to be brilliant stuff under there. Uh, there's, there's some stuff. And there's some stuff that's not even in the files that, that I think is, is amazing. Before all this happened in the months leading up to six months ago, um, I saw a list of some of the files that were supposedly uh, supposed to be coming out in all the document dumps, and one of the one of the things I was interested in were interviews done with Jackie Kennedy, 
uh, about six months after the assassination by an author named William Manchester, who later used the, the interviews that he did with her and a bunch of other witnesses to write a book in 1967 called The Death of a President. But he stipulated that all of the material that he did, the interviews that he did, including those with Jackie, were not to be released until after the death of uh, Kennedy's last child. Um, so Carolyn Kennedy is still alive. But one of the files there was supposedly the tapes of the interviews with Jackie Kennedy. And I've got what's called the RIF numbers, and these are the numbers that are assigned to all these documents and stuff like that, and these would be the actual audio tapes. And so I got those uh, more than six months ago. So I went looking through the files today. They're not in there at all. So they have gone missing. Uh, apparently that's the way it looks right now. Like the president's brain. Yeah, that's, that's been missing ever since... Uh, uh, pretty much the the autopsy. How do you lose? How do you lose the brain of the president who's been assassinated? You don't. You bury it with the body. That's where I think it is. Just before I let you go, uh, I don't. I'm not being flip about this. I really am not. But at this point, even if in one of these documents that comes out in the last 500 or under that black ink, it says, and here is John Smith, who was the guy who took a shot off the grassy knoll and hit the president. It, is it impactful now, or is it just satisfying to finally know the answer? I think it's satisfying to know the answer and, and hopefully uh, write the history books that keep saying that Lee Harvey Oswald was a lone assassin. It is. Uh, it remains fascinating. Maybe well, little, I'll give you one little tip. Yes. Um, I once talked to a CIA guy years ago, and I asked him, what kind of markers do you guys use to black out these documents? He said, I can't tell you that. That's classified. <laughs> True story. I think it's time for all of us after the show tonight to uh, go back, pull up JFK and spend the three and a half hours watching Kevin Costner and Donald Sutherland and John Candy and all those guys again and refresh our memories on all the conspiracies, every single conspiracy jammed into one great movie. I recommend it. And by the way, uh, there's a conspiracy about the movie because I don't think Kevin Costner acted alone. (laughs) Randy Owen, always appreciate having you on. Thanks for the time tonight. Thank you, Scott. That is, uh, and by the way, that was, as I say, John Candy. If you remember, John Candy was in that movie, one of his last great roles. Lots of people in there. Lots of people in there you can watch. Uh, uh, Ed Asner was in that movie. I can't even think of all the other ones who were. But anyway, JFK, if you have three and a half good hours, there's something to way to fill it. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8. Only on 900 CHML. That would be a flock of seagulls with their classic 80s anthem, Ran So Far Away. Well, that's appropriate today, running so far away. Although they may have to change the words for what we're, for this, a, a run that is coming up next weekend. This may be my new favorite thing ever, ever. Because see, every night, almost every night, pretty close to every night after this show, I head over to the gym and I torture myself. I get on the treadmill. It's been, I mean, it's been cold. In the summertime, I'll probably do it outside, but it's been winter. It's been cold. So I go over to the gym and I get on the treadmill and I start running. And I loathe every single step. Hate it. Ken Mann, who works here at CHML, you hear Ken's voice on the news all the time. Ken is an exceptional runner. Great runner. He's done, I don't know how many marathons now. Fantastic runner. And he loves running. I see him leaving here after work and he's dressed in his running gear and he's going for a 20K run. I mean, I think he's touched in the head, but nonetheless, that's what he does. Ted Michaels, not nearly as talented a runner. (laughs) Enthusiastic, wildly enthusiastic, not talented. But he goes out and he loves running too. I don't get the running love. I hate running. Running to me should be saved for 
being chased by a bear, maybe if you're being mugged by someone, like life-saving situations. That's when you sprint. That's when you run. Otherwise, this is why God invented cars, so we wouldn't have to run. The Around the Bay race, you know, if the folks who planned this whole thing thought it through a little better, if we simply drove around the bay, the whole thing could be done much quicker. Just telling you. Anyway, brings me to my point. For those like me, by the way, let me bring Ben here. Do you, are, are you a runner, by the way, Ben? No, hate running. Okay, see, I, I, I knew there was something I liked about you. I do it because I'm told it's good for me. I'm told that it's good for my health. You know, you get your heart rate up, you do your cardio. I've lost a few pounds. That's good, right? There's some benefits to it. I'm not going to lie. There's not... It's not a lack of benefits. There are obviously good things about running, although although it is worth pointing out that the guy who started the running craze back in the 70s, whose name is eluding me at this moment, it's four letters, Flick or... Anyway, I'll look it up in a second. Uh, he dropped dead of a heart attack while running. And Phidippides, the, ger- the Greek guy who was credited with creating the marathon, remember what happened at the end of the marathon? Do you remember why the marathon is the length it is? Because he ran from marathon to Athens or Athens to marathon, I can't remember which one it was, to tell them that they're being attacked 26 miles, 385 yards, 365 yards, and then drops dead. There's no good stories in running. Running is filled with stories of people dropping dead while running. This is not a sport we should be involved in, except that it's supposed to be good for us. And so every once in a while, you know, you go out. I do it every night. Let me get to my point. The Bourne Run that is happening on May the 4th, I believe is my kind of run. I believe it may be Ben's kind of run. The... uh, the, this is being billed as the race for underachievers. It's a 0.5K, <laughs> not a 5K. It's the 0.5K. Uh, it is, this is awesome. The, um, the race starts at a brewery where you will get a beer as part of your fee. Uh, well, let me tell you what goes on here. Uh, all finishers, so you get a beer to start with, all finishers, this is from their website, will receive a pretentious oval Euro style 0.5K sticker you can attach to your rear windshield to show what a tough guy you are. Uh, everyone gets a t-shirt, everyone gets a participation medal, no matter how bad they are, because we're all about positivity and self-worth. There's a coffee and donut station at the halfway point for carb loading so you don't, you know, lose your energy. You know, they have water stations in the big runs. Here we have a coffee and donut station. Uh, they point out this will this is also where the designated smoking area is. <laughs> there will be finish line photos <laughs> for those who are exhausted. There is, thankfully, a medical tent because you wouldn't want someone to, you know, in that span to, um, to hurt themselves. The race is being s- sanctioned by... Slacker, the Society for Lazy and Carefree Runners. And there will be a bagpipe player playing Amazing Grace at the start, which apparently they say you'll still be able to hear at the finish. (laughs) I kind of love this. Oh, and the best part, you can sign up for the VIP treatment in this race, Ben. What do you think you get if you sign up for the VIP of this race? Two beers. No, you don't even have to run. You get to not run. You get to go to the 0.5K, get all this stuff, and you don't even have to do the run. I think this is, I think I am going to pass this along to the folks from the Around the Bay race. And next year, 
They can have their 30K. They can have their 10K times three relay. They can have their 5K walk and run. And they should have the 0.5K. To, it's the 125th anniversary next year. Let's fully immerse the city in this and bring out all the people who can only do 0.5K. Go from the Swiss Chalet on York Boulevard to the parking garage on York Boulevard. Have a photo, have a beer, have a coffee, have a donut, and go home. That, to me, is a run. James Fix was the name of the guy. Thank you, James uh, Fix. Yeah, three letters, not four. Fix. I was thinking F-I-C-K, but that was going to get me in trouble, so it's F-I-X, James Fix. And with two two X's, X's, there it is. See, there you go. You're listening to The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8, only on 900 CHML. Let us now bring in our good friend, Bubba O'Neill. All right, your choice, player's choice tonight, and thanks for joining us this evening after last night, which, by the way, I, when I saw you on TV yesterday, I thought your head was going to explode. Oh, my goodness. What a night of sports. Leafs, Jays, Raptors, TFC, Marlies, set up for the Bulldogs, Ticats training camp. One more thing, and you may have actually burst into flames. Yeah, and a crazy night by LeBron James. <laughs> just, just insane. So your choice, player's choice tonight, would you like the let's take issue topic first or would you like the angry topic first? Oh, I always like angry. All right, well, let's go with angry first because I'm watching TFC. I finished watching the Leafs. I've been flipping around watching some other stuff. And I get to the TFC, the soccer game. It's Toronto Football Club playing against Guadalajara for the CONCACAF Club Championship. As the champion. It's, it's, it's a big deal. Anyway. They get to overtime. This thing is all tied up. And even before they got there, my blood pressure was going up because you know what's coming. Because it seems, Bubba, that every significant soccer championship, by some unnatural law, is now required to be decided by penalty kicks. When will soccer finally grow up and decide this is the stupidest way to decide a championship in any sport, anywhere, on any planet? You know, why don't you just leave it alone? It is what it is. It's like, stupid. That, that, that's the way it goes. And had I believe it was Marky Delgado had a great opportunity at the 90th minute for Toronto FC to win the entire tournament. He did. Yep. He did. All right? So don't shoot it over the bar. And win and win in regulation. Great effort by TFC. And you know what? You're right. There are a lot of big competitions, UEFA, Champions League finals, where generally teams play, both teams end up playing very defensively, and you end up getting into a situation where you might end up with a draw and you have to end up into penalty kicks. You can't keep playing forever. If there is a criticism, I would say that this particular tournament format does not follow you know, the World Cup or what we generally see in uh, European championships, where you'll play extra time with two 15-minute halves or that kind of thing before you go to penalty kicks. This one goes straight to kicks. Um, but you know what? That's soccer, and it's been like that for 100 years, and you know what? I'm going to say I hope it doesn't change. Oh, no, no. It's got to change. They've got to grow up. They've got to Because nobody won this championship yesterday. Nobody won this championship. The, the Guadalajara team well, got the trophy by a stupid exhibition f- skills competition. And look, kicking... Scott, well, Scott we do this in hockey. I, I, and no, I disagree, but we, but we would never, 
ever. Well, it's not true. I shouldn't say that. In the Olympics, we do. I was going to say we would never, ever give a championship to someone. in a, And I hate those, too. Let them play. If you have to take a guy off the field every 10 minutes until they score, if you have to do something but play the game, penalty kicks... For most guys, the other part is, the worst part about this is, for most guys, it's like kicking the a ball from the beach into the ocean. The net is huge. So, so it's not even like it's exciting. It's just stupid. It it's is stupid. exciting. I found it extremely exciting. And I was disappointed with the loss, but I found it extremely exciting. I was, I, I mean, I, I can't think of anything more nerve-wracking. And just to say, and then people say, oh, they got the big, huge net. Well, Toronto had Toronto FC, two, two of their four kickers, uh, failed to put the ball in the net. Well, it's Michael gone. Michael Bradley's ball, I think it actually bumped into Sputnik as it was orbiting the Earth. Well, he did his best. Paula's ball is in a, a, a or Paul. Oh, who was it uh, in the uh, for Italy in the World Cup in the States? Baggio. Ba- Roberto Baggio when he yeah. yeah when he actually hit a satellite that was flying low over the stadium that one time. It, it's it's it, it is it takes. I'm telling you, you try it. And I'll, I'll ask anyone out there who thinks it's so easy to try it, and especially, you know what, without a goaltender. It's hard, and when you've got that kind of pressure on you, you see players wilt several, several times over the many, many years. We're talking about uh, Beckham. Some of the greatest players of all time have blown it from the spot. I find it interesting. I find it nerve-wracking. And you know what? I'm going to say this, and I truly do mean this. It is the way it is. It's been like that for 100 years. And for once, I hope they don't North Americanize European soccer. Well, we, see, I, we disagree because I think that that has as much to do with a soccer game to decide a soccer game, they may as well just bring out two cows and have a cow milking competition at midfield. That's got as much to do with soccer as this does. I don't know. Except, I, except with that, you could use your hands. I, that, <laughs> I think that's the way soccer is. Stop tweaking things like we tend to do here. We're tweaking baseball. We're doing pitch counts. We're counting how many times the, the, the manager can come out and talk to the players. We're thinking about changing the size of the nets in hockey. Uh, we're taking out kickoffs, which was one of the most exciting parts of football out of the sport. Why do? Why in North America do we have to keep tweaking, tweaking, changing, changing? The people in North America, outside of North America, and everywhere else soccer is played, have no issue with this. The only people that complain about penalty kicks are North American, especially when we lose. And the same thing for for penalty shots in world competitions when we lose. It's the only time we complain about it. Let me say for the record... I was tweeting out last night before the game was over, so this was not jumping on because they lost. I, I don't believe, I don't agree with penalties as a deciding factor for a championship under any circumstance. Let them play till somebody scores. There's Where are they going? It's the championship game. Where are they going? they got lots of time. There's not a game a day later or something. Let them play. Anyway. Okay, that's that's part of it. That's my that's my. I was ticked off last night because of that because it seems like it happens way too often that we end up with soccer being decided. But here's my taking issue with thing. Last night during the Leaf game, now we're not even going to get to the Raptors today. They're doing fine. We'll be we'll have lots of time to talk about the Raptors because once they get past the Wizards, they're going to go on a playoff run here, and I think they're going to be around for a while. I do agree. Uh, the Toronto Rat Toronto Blue. Um, I'm going through. My brain is going through a checklist of all the teams here that played. The Toronto Maple Leafs last night lose to Boston, 
And I'm looking at watching this game and I'm thinking, okay, who's at fault for this game? I mean, it's a team game. I know that. And so everybody ultimately is at fault. And there are a lot of people blaming Freddie Anderson, the goalie, for giving up a couple bad goals in the third. And he had a hand in the game being lost. And a lot of people going after Jake Gardner because he was just, I mean, he was a mess. He was a hot mess yesterday on the blue line. He couldn't do anything right. But that happens. But I'm looking at this going, you know, as I've watched this and last year in the playoffs, and I'm starting to watch this team more closely, is Mike Babcock not due to be wearing some of this blame? Uh, I might agree with you. Uh, But as I've said before, maybe to you, and I know I've certainly said to others, he was in a situation, the way I look at it, is that the talent, you go back in Mike Babcock's you know, coaching career, the team that he's trying to mold into, he doesn't have the guns. He doesn't have the players. right? You look at Detroit, you look at, obviously, the Olympic teams, and those are teams that he likes. I mean, he's a guy that likes 3-2 hockey games. He's a guy that likes what 2-1 hockey games. For whatever reason, and I base this on talent, this team is not a good match for him right now. Now, I believe in time. By the time he gets to his eighth year, I'm sure probably before he gets to his eighth year in this long contract that he has, is that he will have the defenseman to help this team and play the way he wants the team to play. Because you, he said he has called out his team several times for trying to play run-and-gun hockey. And as we see, when you get into the postseason – it does not work, and especially when you play a hard forechecking, hard-checking team like Boston, you're generally going to lose. And that's exactly what happened last night. That third period, the forechecking, the Leafs could not control the, four, the hard forecheck of the Boston Bruins. So uh, is there some blame on Babcock? Yeah, probably so, maybe so. He's, a, he, he's part of the team as well, too, so there's blame to go around everywhere. He's not perfect. But I believe that this team doesn't play the way he wants them to play. Let me tell you why I think Mike Babcock was at fault yesterday. Because Jake, uh, Jake Gardner, who again was having a terrible game, it, you know, despite what people are saying, he's not a terrible hockey player. He had a terrible night. There's no question about it. He had, yeah, he he had, had, a, he had a career year. Yeah, he had a, he had a, he was a, he's a good hockey player who just had a mess of a night. But if you're the coach and there's a guy on your team, good player or not, who is absolutely wetting the bed for whatever reason his night is stinks, how does he keep going on for a regular shift over and over and over at some point in the third period when it's clear that everything Jake Gardner is touching in this game is turning to poop? You don't put him on every single shift. You fi- you give uh, Travis Dermott, who who's a young guy, probably doesn't have uh, Babcock's trust fully yet, but was having a real good game. You don't continue to run the same guy out there that's yeah, screwing things up. You, you just said it there. I mean, you're a coach. You've coached before. You just the trust level is not there yet for Dermott, nor should it be. But not guy, on a day to day. The guy hasn't played eighty games in the National Hockey League yet. But I mean, he's rode. He's been riding his, his Polak and. Uh, and Hainsey, in which you know people have criticized him for, and like look at that win in Boston, the final minute of the game, he went with Polak 
and Hainsey for, for the entire final minute of the game. And you also had a situation where Morgan Riley's face was all busted yep. up after taking. So they were basically short of defensemen. Even though he did return, he was in tremendous amount of pain and probably uh, might have missed a couple of shifts due to the fact that he was so banged up. Okay, so is a coach's job, though, part of it, regardless of whether the guy's a veteran, a rookie, a first game or whatever, right. is part of your job not to assess who is playing well on your team and who isn't and give the guys more ice time who are playing well? That, I, see, I, I would argue you're, that that's... You're, you're right, Scott, but I'm sorry. If you look at the... I mean, take a second look, and I don't know if you have, okay? The DeBrus goal that, where he blows down the right, the, right, uh, the right side of the ice, and then, you know, Gardner pushes him to the outside as he should. The shot now is supposed to be stopped by the goaltender. Anderson should have stopped that shot. Absolutely. And okay. that one that one got Gardner more crap than anything else. And but honestly, it, it, that it, was the one that he probably played the best. He played it totally per- the way the way it was supposed to. He he gave he gave uh, the shooter in DeBrusque one option in shooting and he couldn't cut across cuz he hammered him across when he when he tried to cut across. The, the funny and, part, yeah, the funny part of that is that I would bet you that 99% of people watching that game would never have actually questioned Gardner until the commentators said that he turned the wrong way and suddenly now everyone's saying, "Oh, he turned the wrong way. What an he idiot." He played it the right way. He played it the right way. And Fred Anderson's got to make a save. Tory Krug, the, the the one that tied the game early in the third. Anderson's got to make that save. Now look, Fred Anderson, Freddie Anderson's the reason why they even got to a game seven. So it's tough to criticize him. But in that game, in the third, the third period, period he was he was he, 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 he had was, trouble. He, he he struggled. He was a goat. So to blame, yeah. And sometimes I've always said this too. There's particular statistics in individual sports where you look at particular numbers, and sometimes they don't tell the true story. Okay, let me give and, you another and, one. And we're all looking at minus five and I blaming don't... it on this guy and saying, and no, it, it, it's more than him. Let me give you another one. These, uh, let me tell you uh, the names of six players, and I'll tell you why I'm going to name them. Joe Thornton, he's a big name, but he's what, 58 years old now? Yeah. Uh, Nick Schmaltz. Alexander Wenberg, Robert Hag, Ryan Pulock, Mike Hoffman. All of those guys this year in the NHL averaged more ice time than Austin Matthews. You have one of the superstar players in the league, and he is falling behind journeyman guys on other teams. You've got Then you go to power play. Austin Matthews averaged two minutes, basically just two minutes of power play time. He had less power play time than Tyler Bozak, Jason Zucker, JT Comfer, Christian Fisher. Mitch Marner also had almost no power play time. I don't understand how Mike Babcock, a apparently, and I believe a bright coach, continues to find ways to not put his best players on the ice more to give them more opportunities. If I'm him, okay. and I'm I'm not being paid six and a half million bucks, but I can darn well tell you that Mitch Marner and Austin Matthews are going to be on for a lot more than two minutes a game for power play time. Well, I mean, first of all, they, the Leafs they didn't have a lot of power plays. I mean, Boston had the, the uh, throughout the series had most of the power, the power play opportunities. But here's the thing. You just said moments ago that when guys are going good, they should get ice time, and when guys are not going good, they shouldn't get ice time. Was was Austin Matthews going good to you? I'm talking about through the course of the year. I wonder how much different oh. Austin Matthews is on the power play, how much better he is if he's got twice as much. Ron Hainsey 
has something like 17 hours of shorthanded time that he played this year. I mean, he was on the ice for the entire... Because he was the most reliable That's guy true. penalties. That's true, but he also, as the year went on, he got better and better and better. I'm looking, going, if, I'm, if I, I have Austin Matthews, I want him on for a minute of every two-minute power play that I have. Now, that may be over two shifts, not over one shift, but I want him on the ice all the time when I have a man advantage. Uh, this is... Um, this is, you know, I, I just, I don't understand. And so you've got this situation now. you get to a game like this and you, there's some stuff that you say, I'm not sure that this has been, I, I don't know if Austin, if Austin Matthews has had more ice time and more power play time and more confidence in those situations over the year, do you find yourself in this spot? I don't know. Well, I, 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 I would say that, that he, I mean, he, Babcock evaluates his players and his coaching staff as much as probably any other NHL coach. And, and the guys had incredible experience, worldwide experience. And I said, as a, you know, was part of a Detroit team that, you know, made the playoffs every single year. So I feel like he has to be trusted. And, and that's the reason why they pay him, you know, what was it, $8 million for eight, ten years or whatever it was. Uh, I think he knows what he's doing. And to me, I have no issues with, with Austin Matthews and his ice time, uh, especially in this series. I don't think it was deserved. I think other guys were going better than him. Uh, he's 20 years old. Um, it just it, it wasn't happening. And I believe also that there's line matchup situations. It is clear and obvious to me, and even in victories, even in Leaf victories, and I guess there was three of them in this series, that Patrice Bergeron, when playing, and I know he was injured for a game, he uh, owned Austin Matthews. He owned him. And I don't know for what. It's a reason why he couldn't get free. I, uh, maybe there was uh, he didn't like getting bumped by Chara. We also saw William uh, Nylander struggle as well, too. Uh, they just It was a bad matchup against the Boston Bruins. Okay, one, one more thing, then i got to go. Unfortunately, I'm out of time. I could do this all night with you. Uh, and that is, okay, so you've got a situation where Bergeron is owning, his line is owning Austin Matthews. Bergeron is also legitimately, what, 35, 36? Mm. 34? 35, okay. Right. You play Austin Matthews, knowing how good he is every second line over the course of seven games, and let's wear Bergeron down. You make that guy, if they're going to match up and he wants to play every second shift with that line, fine, we'll see what happens by the end of seven games. There was a game, I can't remember if it was game four or game five or game six, whatever it was, maybe it was last night, I can't remember when I saw it, that Zdeno Chara had played 19 minutes and Austin Matthews had played eight. That uh, you, there are teams that play their best play. Now I know he's a defenseman. I know it's different, but there are teams that play their best players a lot. And for whatever reason, Mike Babcock holds back on the best players. And I say, you know what? You got young guys who are really talented. Let them go. Let's see what they can do. Austin Matthews does not need to be coddled anymore. He holds back, or he likes to roll his four lines. He's been successful as a coach. It rolls his three to four lines. Okay, and, and, and so, you know what, let's go back to the Glenn Sather days. I want to have uh, Ken Linsman and Dave Semenko on the ice for equal ice time with Wayne Gretzky. That doesn't even make sense. That You play Wayne Gretzky and Yari Curry every second shift, and you move the other guys in and out. You get your stars on the ice because they're the guys who win you games. I don't need to see Dave Semenko every second shift or every fourth shift. Anyway. We'll talk about this. We'll continue with this because we got a whole summer now well, to bash on the Leafs. Well, and it's funny because I have a feeling uh, is that there's going to be definite changes. Oh, sure there will. Um, there's going to be players that we know as Maple Leafs now, some of them that we've known for a while that will not be back. And uh, I believe that tomorrow, and I don't know why I'm feeling this, 
I feel like there's going to be some things said in, in, during the locker the clean-out that we didn't really know about. That, that There always are. There always are. And, okay, last thing, because I do have to go. If you were the Leafs, yes. and you would trade, you're not going to trade Austin Matthews, and now you're not going to trade Mitch Marner, would you, knowing how bad your defense was, would you consider trading William Nylander for an A-list stud defenseman, if you could get one, who's a bit of a veteran guy. So you lose some years, you pay more money, but you get the guy that you really need on your back end. Would you do that? I, I, in my opinion, you, I mean, you, uh, Mitch Marner is available too. Any, anyone but Austin Matthews and uh, probably Frederick Anderson are available, in my opinion, right now. Always love talking with Bubba O'Neill. You can catch him tonight on CHCH at 11 o'clock doing the sports and in his free time, the weather, which is a lot better now. We like you a lot better now when you say it's going to be sunny and warm than blizzard and icy rain crap. It makes life a lot easier, that's for sure. Bubba O'Neill, thanks for doing this, sir. Always a pleasure, Scott. Thanks for having me. The Scott Radley Show. The Scott Radley Show. Weeknights from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.